once we lost that game, everybody bought in, things took off. And then I left and then Pete Carroll era just continued on the upward trajectory and won national championship after national championship. You didn't even mention you won the Heisman Trophy. Won the Heisman, uh, <laughs> which was cool. That's pretty cool, huh? This podcast is presented by Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their businesses and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. Welcome back to Beyond the X's and O's. Today we get to sit down with a guy that I just have so much respect for, Carson Palmer. Uh, he's a guy that in the quarterback fraternity circles, you know, we're all playing, we're all talking to each other, we're together in the offseason. This was the dude we all thought was elite that wasn't getting the recognition he was deserving. A lot of times because he went to bad teams and made them better. An elite talent, an elite leader, uh, an elite human being. Uh, I love his take today. He talks about the first time his his parents gave him permission to play football. He remembers that moment. He says he doesn't remember a lot about his childhood, but he remembers that moment when his parents gave him permission uh, to first play football when he was an elementary school student. Talks about moving around, getting down to Southern California, playing for a legendary high school program. Uh, his time with his private quarterback trainer, Bob Johnson, a legendary coach, how much he learned from him. Uh, the recruiting journey. This. Carson was highly recruited. He was really one of the first guys that went through this glamorous, uh, high-profile recruiting. Um, gets to USC, goes through two different coaches, talks about his time with Pete Carroll. A senior year that leads him to a Heisman and an Orange Bowl victory. A pre-draft process uh, that allows him to be picked number one overall by the Bengals. Uh, I love his, he has a really funny pre-draft story of all his buddies getting to do all this stuff as they're going through the pre-draft process and he doesn't get to do any of it because he knows he's going to the Bengals and none of the other coaches want to talk to him. Uh, at the very end of this conversation is really where I found the gold. He gives some parenting advice uh, that is absolutely brilliant to, and honestly, it's to you quarterback dads. So a lot of you quarterback dads are watching this. This advice that he gives is to you, and it'll help you be a better quarterback dad. So sit back and enjoy our time with Carson Palmer. Well, fired up for today's guest, Carson Palmer, uh, a guy I've admired for a lot of years, become friends with him over the years, and uh, just love the way he played ball. And his story is unique, and we'll jump right into it. So Carson, we don't really talk about a lot of the stuff that mainstream media talks about. What we do love talking about is growing up and then your kind of launch point as a quarterback. So take us back. You're born in Fresno, California, a place dear to me. Uh, you get kind of big and strong. You move down to Orange County, uh, play at Santa Margarita High School. Kind of talk to me through that journey when you know you're going to be a quarterback, and then we'll jump into some of your high school playing days. Yeah, so I was, I was born in the know. Uh, yep. in 1979, uh, You're young, youngster. Yeah. Born, born in the know, lived there for a little while, moved to, I moved around a bunch as a kid. I moved from Fresno to, uh, to Southern California, to Colorado Springs, Colorado, back to Fresno for fourth, fifth, sixth grade. 
then in junior high moved to uh, Laguna Niguel back to Southern California and then stayed in Southern California from junior high through high school. And um, I'll never forget the first year I was begging my parents to play football. They always said, no, my dad didn't play. My mom didn't like the possible injuries and concussions. Actually concussions weren't really a, a, I don't know if concussions were really a, a term at that point. But bell dinged ring. Up. We called it dinged up. Dinged up, bell rung, whatever it was. Um, and I was in Colorado Springs, and I'll never forget. I was in the garage, and my mom had this old white Cadillac Eldorado. And I was in the garage, and we were getting ready to play. Um, we played like roller. I remember rollerblades were hot back in the day. We, we played roller hockey in the neighborhood with the kids. And so we would take an old broom and duct tape the broom into the shape of a hockey stick. We didn't have hockey sticks. And I was in there and I was working on my hockey stick and get ready to go out, play, play with the kids. And my mom had pulled into the driveway. She's like, Hey, I want you, want you, uh, I want you to know your dad and I made a decision. And they said, and, and they told me they're going to let me play football. And I'll never forget that day. I don't remember much about my childhood, but I don't, I don't, I have not forgotten that day. Because it was a constant dinner table talk, you know, please, no, please, pretty, please, no, pretty, 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 no. And so finally they, they gave me the okay. Um, and I remember I had a shoulder pad with a, the old school white tubed neck roll. Yeah. I had the Thurman Thomas face mask. My dad got me elbow did. pads. Um, and I just played first. I, I played running back and linebacker because there was no throwing um, at, at that age. I think I was in fifth grade, maybe. Um, and so I fell in love with the game playing running back and linebacker. And then as I progressed into junior high, they tried me at quarterback and I just, from there on, um, always played quarterback and they moved me to free safety because, so you wouldn't get hurt as the likelihood of getting hurt was, was less. Um, but from that moment on, I fell in love and that's all I wanted to do. Were you a big kid? Like, were you the the tall, skinny kid, or did you hit your growth spurt? Like, because what did you play at about six five, two thirty five, somewhere in that realm? Yeah, yeah, I was six five, two thirty two every year yep. of my career. Still two thirty two. A lot of that yeah, muscles right. turned to fat. No, <laughs> a lot of that muscles turned to fat, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was I was the biggest kid probably in class and on the team, and um, and um, always had a little more athleticism than most kids and, and drive. And, um, you know, I, I think from, from stories I've heard through, through kids I played with or, um, coaches, you don't know if you're a leader or not, you just naturally yeah. fall into place wherever you do. And so I, I was always told I was a great leader and just, I, I was just gung ho for it where some kids were like, yeah, this is football season. The next season's lacrosse or soccer. It was football season. And I was dragging guys along like, be committed, be here every day. And I didn't realize what that was at that time. I just loved the sport and wanted to win and wanted as many kids to be as passionate and, and all in as I was. And you just don't find that at that age. I mean, there's half kids that that's their last year playing football. And then another quarter will play for maybe another year or two. And then it fizzles out, but I was all in and, and wanted guys and wanted to be surrounded by guys um, that had the same mindset I did. Um, so I just naturally was always bigger, was always very focused and very determined and naturally leading came, um, very natural. And, and my way of leading from the, you know, from the time I first started playing all the way through my career was not the rah, rah cheerleader yelling and screaming. It was just, 
doing everything right, doing a little bit extra, giving it everything you got. Every every play is is balls to the wall, no matter what. Um, and that was just that that was a natural ability that I had at that age. I want to dig into that a little bit because there's so many kids that list watch this, coaches, and you know everybody. I always say I don't even know what leadership is anymore. There's so many definitions for it. Um, mm -hmm. Choose to use the word influence more than leadership. I find myself using that word more. But how? Where do you think your ability to lead and that uh, ability to stay focused and locked in and lead by example and work harder and do the lonely work was that something that was modeled in your household? Is that something that was taught to you by a coach? Where do you think that came from? I don't know. I I, I don't know that. It, I, I think that's just who who what was in me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I I don't have a favorite player. I, I was not sitting around watching football. I, I can't tell you, um, you know, I didn't really have a team growing up when I lived in Colorado Springs, I kind of followed Denver cause Elway was there, but that's just cause I walked through the room to get water, to go back outside and play. And my dad was watching the Broncos or whatever that was. <laughs> um, but I didn't grow up sitting around the TV, you know, waiting for Monday night football. I watched Monday night football because that's when we ate dinner and my dad was watching the game. So I watched it. And as soon as I was done eating, I'd, I'd be back outside. Um, and my brother, Jordan, and I would sit across the street. We lived in a little cul-de-sac and we would get on one side of the street and the other and just throw, punt the ball to each other and catch it. See how many in a row we could go before the ball hit the ground, but sitting around watching football and having, you know, a, a mentor or, a, um, a favorite player wasn't, it wasn't part of my vocabulary. I wasn't trying to be like Elway or Montana, um, I just wanted to be outside playing and I didn't want to sit down on the ground. I, maybe I had ADD still have a little bit of it. Maybe I just didn't have the attention span to sit through commercials and, and watch, or I just didn't have the desire to watch other people play. I wanted to do it myself. So I was out in the neighborhood playing, you know, pickup games and basketball and football and catch and all those things. Um, but I didn't grow up watching one individual team or one individual player and saying, you know, I want to lead like Elway or I want to, I want to throw the ball like Aikman. It just, I wanted to be outside doing it myself. That's awesome. All right. So you get down to Southern California, back down to Southern California and uh, you go to Santa Margarita high school. Uh, a couple of things I want to want you to talk about here. Number one, just kind of that first starting experience, that first touchdown pass, what the nerves were like, just that whole, um, that first time. Uh, and then kind of what that high school vibe was like, you obviously paid for a legendary coach. You can talk about Bob Johnson. Um, but that just that whole vibe down there. Yeah. I mean, we, um, I was on a great freshman football team. I think we, I'm sure we won every game and won the championship. And, um, at the end of my freshman football season, the thing that sticks out in my mind most is I, I don't remember the first touchdown pass, um, I don't even remember the first win, but I, the thing that really? sticks out in my mind. Yeah, I, I, I don't. The thing that I, I always think back to um, when I was a kid is I got pulled up from the freshman team to varsity at the end of the varsity season. We had went to a, a, a good football uh, school in Santa Margarita Catholic High School. and um, I was sitting in the team room and we were getting ready to go out and play. And I got to wear the sweet unis. You know, we go from freshman unis where they're like the white you know, the white, really uncomfortable practice pants that you wear for games and, and practices, <laughs> the Jersey that you wash on Fridays to play in, but it was all the same. Then you get to go play with the varsity and they're like the, the sheer, you know, the, the nice looking unis. And I was all excited about that. 
remember sitting down in that team room and Jim Hardigan was the head coach and he came in and to give the pump up pregame speech. And I remember sitting in the back of the room around all these high school kids that are two, three years older than me. And the whole, and, and the starter at the time was a guy named Chris Collins and he was a great high school player, went to Stanford on a full ride scholarship for baseball, great baseball player, was really a great quarterback, great athlete. And, um, I remember sitting in that team room and Jim Hardigan was given his pump up speech and he was really talking to Chris about, about leading the team. And um, I just felt like the whole conversation was focused on Chris and there was so much pressure in that room because everybody's looking to Chris to win the game. And I'll never forget. I was sitting in that meeting and watching Jim Hardigan give that speech and looking at Chris and looking back at Jim and Chris and, and and everything was focused on Chris and the, the pressure he was putting on Chris to make sure we won this game. He was the starting quarterback and probably the starting middle linebacker. And I remember sitting in there going, I want that. I, I want, I want that. Uh, I want that feeling that Chris must have right now. I want that pressure that Chris must be just relishing it. Um, and then that was Chris's year, Chris's senior year. He left. And then I took over that spot the next year and I had it my sophomore year. Um, And I just fell in love with the pressure and I fell in love um, with the weight of the team on your shoulders and the school and, you know, the, the, um, the student body on your shoulders. And Chris had that and I wanted it and I sought after it. And then I finally got it and won the job my sophomore year. Um, And it was no looking back from then on. Now, that's really interesting because uh, you're the first of all the guys we've talked to um, that that articulated that way, loved the burden of the position, the pressure that comes with it, all eyes on you. I know most every quarterback has that that's successful, but you don't hear it articulated that often. As you now look at you put your coach's hat on and you've watched quarterbacks come behind you um, since post career, you've worked with quarterbacks, you see a lot of quarterbacks. Uh, can you kind of tell if a guy has the stuff based on whether he wants that pressure or whether he shies away from that pressure? You know, I always equated it to um, once I got to the NFL, I had a, a great quarterback coach named Ken Zampezi. I'm sure you mm-hmm. bumped into Ken. He's now the QB coach in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant X's and O's guy and um, taught me a ton about football and um my first year starting in Cincinnati, we, you know, as, as you get draft picks and these young guys come in and um, the one thing we'd always talk about is, is we just drafted a kid in the first or second or third round in that first preseason game, you know, what are their eyeballs like in the huddle? And that would be the first thing we talked about. And, and that's where I learned to recognize it. You can see in the huddle, when you look around that huddle and you see that guy that's staring at you like this and shoulders start to slump as, as you're calling the first play of the game, or you see that guy that, as you're calling the play, he's getting closer because he can't wait to hear if it's his number that's getting called on this individual play. Yeah. So that's what I always look for. Um, and it's really hard to look for unless you're standing in the huddle. Um, but you can see it now. I mean, when you watch a game and you see a young guy that, you know, is a highly touted guy and he comes in that first game and he's erratic with his feet and all of a sudden he was so natural with a constant whip of his throwing motion, then things start to change. You can see real quick when the bright lights blinded that player and they blinded their focus and they blinded their decision-making and they blinded uh, their leadership ability. So 
I always, I always look for a guy when their first opportunity, when they got that first chance to go out there and play, do they look like they're worried about the bright lights? Do they look like they're worried about the camera and the stadium that's full or are they relishing it? And they can't wait for the next play, even though they may have thrown a pick on the first one, they can't wait to redeem themselves their next opportunity. Or do they kind of, the shoulders kind of slump and they kind of fall backwards into that, um, into that moment. And that's the first thing that I've always looked for. That's awesome. I want to go back to high school a little bit. And I misspoke. I, I know Bob Johnson wasn't your high school coach. He was your private quarterback coach. And it's mm-hmm. relevant because I know Bob had a huge influence on your life. Uh, and now your brother, Jordan, is probably as influential as anybody in the quarterback space. Um, you see kind of a new generation. And you were really one of the first guys that had your your quarterback guru coach mentor on the side how how much did that relationship allow you to develop in high school it's tremendous i mean I, I remember um i started my dad found an ad in like student sports magazine which was this mm-hmm. publication back in the day it was like the only high school publication and uh-huh. um there was a nat ad in the back that at saddleback junior college in mission viejo there were these throwing camps on the weekends on saturday and sunday mornings and so as soon as I went to the first one, I went to the first one, like probably after my first uh, seventh grade football season. And I was out there with a bunch of, a bunch of local high school guys um, that went on and played at some smaller schools or maybe didn't play, but had successful high school careers. And I remember at seventh grade, those guys would show up and there wasn't a difference in the velocity of the ball, the accuracy of the balls that I was throwing compared to them. And Bob pulled me to the side one day after the first day. Hey, what's your name again? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Where, you know, what grade are you in? You're in seventh grade. You sure? You know, it was kind of one of those conversations. And at one of the first couple of times I was throwing on the weekends with him, um, my kind of a light bulb went on like, oh, wait, like this could be bigger than just high school football or junior high football. There, there could be something here. And so I went back every chance I could. Any days that those camps were going on and those camps started to grow, Bob was just growing his business at the time. It was me and maybe three or four other guys the first couple of times. And then it was five or six and then 10 and then 20. And then there were weekend long camps where you spent the night at his house and you threw all day. Um, And then it became to what some of the stuff that you've been doing, some of the stuff that Jordan's doing where, um, you know, it's, it's as important almost as your season is that you get all those reps and you get all that work in the off season. And um, I remember at a young age, realizing through Bob's words, like, Hey, you got a chance to do this in college and, and then we'll talk about later, later, but you got a chance to do this and, and get to college. And that was my way to get to college. Um, I wasn't a strong student. I didn't have straight A's. I wasn't going to be able to get into universities with, with my grades. So I needed college. I needed somebody to pay for it. And I needed, um, I needed an acceptance to different universities that I could get through football that I wasn't going to get without football. So that was my kind of path to, the next level of playing football and, and getting a chance to, to go to a college. That's cool. Well, I want to, I want to get in and we're going to go to a break. When we get back, I want to talk about your recruiting journey because I obviously an incredibly successful high school career and then big time recruit and your time at USC. So we'll be right back. It's football season, baby. And you know what that means? It means we're going for two here with the sponsors of today's show manscape. Blitzing through hairs has never been easier, and it's time you join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by using code DIMES at manscaped.com. 
for 20% off plus free shipping. It's three and out the window with all other trimmers. Now go tame that Wildcat offense. The world is starting to open and the Performance Package 4.0 for Manscaped is here to help you get ready. Inside you'll find their brand new Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, boy do I need that, Crop Reviver Toner, plus two free gifts, Performance Boxer Briefs, and the Shed Travel Bag. The Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped is the perfect package for your package and a key for a great grooming and hygiene routine to make sure the boys downstairs are smooth like Tom Brady in the fourth quarter. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 is here to take your defense to the next level. This fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor. A new multifunction on off switch can engage a travel lock and gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Rain, snow, or sleet are no match for the waterproof power of the 4.0. This package also comes with the Weed Whacker. This elite nose and ear hair trimmer is also waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. This trimmer also has a proprietary skin safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DIMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code DIMES. This podcast is presented by Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their businesses and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. Back with Carson Palmer. And, uh, you know, again, he touched on his private quarterback coach, Bob Johnson's experience at Saddleback with these quarterback camps. It's funny, Carson, we had Mark Sanchez on, a guy that followed you to USC and obviously had a great career there and really good NFL career. And he talked about the same thing, how, when he started going to Bob's passing camps, how the confidence grew, cause he could throw it like everybody else. He would watch you. He talked about how he idolized you and the ability to watch you each weekend was such a huge influence to him. And uh, it's cool because like you said, it's almost as important as your season because these off season camps, the exposure and it, it pours gasoline on your recruiting. So Talk to me a little bit about your recruiting experience and then how you landed at USC. And then we'll get into your time at USC. Yeah. So uh, my sophomore year when I became the starter uh, was when recruiting started after that season. We, I think we went, won every game and won the um, CIF championship and um, being a bigger kind of power conference school in Southern California, if you're on a good team, recruiters show up. And so um, slowly, as especially as some of the older guys in the team were getting recruited, um, they would notice the tall skinny kid that's 15 or whatever I was at the time. And so I started getting invited to, um, to just the different camps and it wasn't elite 11. I, I forget the name of it back then, but there was an elite 11, like 
um, competition that were going on, that were being held in LA and Riverside and kind of all over central and Southern California. And I started going to those and that's when I started just getting offers. Um, cause I, I was a bigger kid as a saw. I was probably six, four, six, five, probably just under 200 pounds. And oh, wow. I could, I could run around and make plays with my feet. I could throw it all over the place. And, um, I started going to these different, um, I think it might've been student sports that was running these camps where it was like the top quarterbacks, receivers, DBs, and tight ends. And, um, and it wasn't as, as uh, professional, probably as well run as some of the elite 11 and stuff that, that you've been involved in over the last decade or so. But um, those videos would then go out and, you know, those videos of, of the on field drills would go out and I just started getting calls and letters in the mail and, and offers um, and I, I started also going, I went to the University of Colorado football camp. I went to the USC football camp. Um, I went to the Boston College camp. But I, as soon as I started going to camps, I was getting offers on the spot. When I would, when I would go at the end of it, they'd give me, they'd give me a, a scholarship offer. And then once you get, as you know, once you get a couple and you're young, you're a sophomore, everybody starts coming in and recruiting just because a handful of local guys are recruiting you. So, um, after my sophomore year, it was on and, and recruiting it really, really picked up some steam. Did that change at all? Or would you just handle it and strike I me mean, your personality? I've known you a long time. It doesn't, I wouldn't guess it changed you at all, but was that weird at school being the big man on campus and having all these offers at such a young age? No, because I didn't really talk about them. No, nobody really knew. Um, until my senior year when I was getting pulled out of class because you know, John Robinson, the coach at USC would show up and I'd get, you know, that slip in class or you got to go to the football coach's office. That started to happen weekly. And that that's my senior year. Once publications and, you know, the student sports magazine started coming out and ranking players. That's when guys started, started figuring and, and classmates started figuring out that um, I was getting heavily recruited, but it wasn't something that, that I was, um, publicizing or talking about, or, um, you know, you couldn't post pictures back then, obviously on Instagram of a, you know, a, an official scholarship offer, but nobody really knew what was going on until my, my senior year when there was no way to hide it. Can, can you sympathize? I don't know if sympathize is the right word. Can you appreciate what these kids now go through with all the eyeballs on them and how some of them go crazy because the attention become, absorbed with the recruiting process and lose focus on what's important. I mean, now as an old man, can you sit back and go, wow, if I would have had to gone through that, that would have changed because I know I can't, I, and I wasn't nearly as highly recruited as you, but I don't think I was mature enough. I know I wasn't mature enough at that age to handle everything that these kids deal with. Do you have an appreciation? Maybe that's the word for what they go through now. Yeah. I don't think it's healthy. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't think it's, you know, there, there's certain sides of it that are a benefit to, to be under that scrutiny from a young age because it only intensifies and ramps up as opposed to I just kind of skied it along and played basketball and football. And then, boom, I'm in Los Angeles and I'm in a room full of you know 60 reporters in a press conference. Now these kids have TV shows. Now there's high school yeah. kids getting paid with NFT deals and all that kind of stuff. I, I personally don't think it's healthy. I just can't imagine a 16 year old kid. It, it was enough on me. like being a 16 year old kid, like, man, Bob Davey, the Notre Dame coach flew in to come and watch me practice today on a Wednesday, you know, um, that blew my head up for sure. But I can't imagine, um, 
you know, and, and back then too, you would get a call on your landline at your house. <laughs> but as you know, with, with kids, you know, you went from school to practice to weight training. You didn't get home until eight 30 at night. You got to be up early the next day. So my mom had like this very specific window, of like eight 30 to nine 30 when coaches could call. And, um, now it's 24 seven. I mean, you can get tweeted, you can get Instagram DM, you can get all these different avenues of attention from, Brian Kelly's of the world and, you know, Nick Saban's. And, and I think that, um, that relentless pursuit that these kids are under now just isn't healthy. It, you, you're, you know, I was able to be a high school kid. Nobody thought I was just a kid. Nobody thought I was anything special because they didn't know that all these things were going on. Now, all these classmates, these kids know there's TV cameras following this kid at school and, you know, as a sophomore and a junior and, you know, Nick Saban put out a tweet to so-and-so and the world saw it. And, you know, there, there's so many, um, there's so many avenues of distraction for kids these days. Back then it was very narrow. That window where a coach could call you or a coach could vi visit you was really narrow. Now it's so open. Um, and the pursuit is exhausting on these kids that I'm sure it's affecting kids in a lot of, a lot of negative ways. And they are, like you said, losing their mind. All right. So you're an old man. Now you're a father of four. You've had a 15-year NFL career, multiple Pro Bowls, made tons of money, blah, 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 blah. Johnny Pink Sox right now is watching, right? He's a five-star recruit out of Texas. He's a sophomore junior. His life is being turned upside down because everywhere he goes, they want to talk about recruiting. What would you tell him? I mean, it's, it's reality. We're living in it. It's not going to change. I agree with you 100%. It's not healthy, but it's not going to change. It's only going to amp up more with NILs and all these different things, what would you tell them? I think the, the main thing is just, you can't take yourself too seriously. Yep. You are who you are. And I'll never forget you and I, and I won't say who you and I were playing in a certain golf tournament and there was a certain young player there yep. that showed yep. up with a full crew of bodyguards. Yep. And you and I Very kind of looked over at the side. Yeah. yeah. You and I kind of looked over on the side and we were like, are those and Michael Jordan walked around without a bodyguard. Michael Jordan yep. walked around with his son, you know. Yep. And I remember, I remember at that moment, um, you and I had a had a discussion about what we thought about that. And um, I remember at that moment, I was like, "That's the definition. That guy's just taking himself way too seriously." Mm -hmm. And that's easy to do now. I mean, it's, it wasn't very easy to do when you and I were coming out, um, but now with all the love these guys are getting, all the attention. Um, all the potential, you know, different routes where you can make money now as an amateur. Um, what, what was, you know, a couple of years ago considered an amateur. Um, guys just take themselves too seriously. You, you are who you are. You are who your parents raised. You're who your buddies know is the kid that grew up down the street. But once you start buying in to all this attention and thinking you are or you need to be somebody different or be somebody special, um, I just think that's some a, a pitfall of a lot of guys. They just take themselves too seriously. I couldn't agree more. It's it's almost as if all the publicity, all the attention lies to them and makes them think they're more important than anybody else. And uh, it's that humility, which me and you both will tell them is coming one way or the other, right? You're going to no get doubt. humbled. You might as well no learn doubt. at an early age to treat others uh, better than yourself or think of others higher than yourself, because if you don't, you're going to get humbled real quick. All right, let's, let's hit the USC career. Cause it was an incredible USC career. I mean, I was a fan of you 
while I was in the NFL and, and you were playing at USC and I, I couldn't get enough of watching you play. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you redshirted, correct? So I, I, uh, I played my true freshman year. Okay. Um, and we, we weren't very good. And then yep. my true sophomore year, I, I, uh, at Oregon, I tried to run over um, a linebacker and broke my shoulder. I broke my and that's when you And that's when you redshirted. And so it was only in, it was in the second game. And if you got yep. hurt back then, the rule was if you got hurt pre-week three, that year could count as a redshirt year. So broke my collarbone. I think I broke it at the perfect time. I broke my collarbone on the last play of the first half of the second week. Had I broken <laughs> it on the first play of the third quarter in week three, then I would have lost that year entirely. But I broke it literally on the last play before the half wow. and was able to redshirt that year. So I sat out uh, my true sophomore year, redshirted, and then played my redshirt sophomore year, which was the next season. And all three of those were with Coach Hackett, correct? My first three were with, with Paul Hackett. My last two were with Pete Carroll. Yep. So Coach Carroll comes into town, a uh, little change of the offense, change in energy, and then kind of off to the races. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, he came in and, and just turned the program on its side. I mean, he changed everything. And for the better, he changed everything. The way we lifted weights, the way we offseason conditioned, the offense, the defense, the mentality, the energy level, the attention to detail. I mean, he, he turned everything on its ear and um, it took us a while to get going. And I don't know that everybody bought in right away uh, to the new philosophy, but by the time we got halfway through his first year, we were rolling along pretty good. And people forget, I, I mean, I love coach Carroll. He's a guy, I admire guys study. Uh, people forget it's not like he came out of the NFL with some illustrious record. So he couldn't come in and just be like, Hey, I want a Super Bowl in the NFL and you're going to do it like this and we're all going to be successful. Right. I mean, there, there was some street cred he had to earn with the program. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we had just Paul Hackett had come in from uh, Kansas city chiefs yeah. and he was an NFL guy coming to college. And then sure enough, he gets fired and here comes Pete Carroll, who had just come in from the Patriots or maybe the Jets. But here, here's another NFL guy. Here we go again. I think it took a little while for everybody to buy in to that program. But he wasn't loved from day one. He was questioned from day one. Mm -hmm. Who's this guy? We, we need a big name. We need a, you know, John Robinson type figure, a, a dominant personality. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there was a lot of questions, especially in the L.A. media. I mean, as soon as that hire was made, it was kind of a surprise hire. There was a bunch of other coaches that were being named as potential candidates, but Pete was on the bottom of the list. It seemed like the whole time as I was tracking it. And then all of a sudden Pete was the guy and everybody's like, here we go again. Here's another NFL guy trying to come to college. And um, man, was everybody wrong? Yeah. I want to do the same exercise with you because right now there's a college kid out there. He's between his second and third year. Let's call it arbitrarily. And his coach is going to get fired or just got fired. And right now with the portal, right? It's so easy. Just say, well, I don't like this. So I'm going to jump in the portal and go somewhere else. What did you learn in that transition? What could another college kid learn in that transition of, all right, I'm going to have to relearn everything and I'm going to have to buy into a new culture and I'm going to have to learn a new offense. Oh, by the way, I'm going to have to earn the job because I'm sure this coach believes in competition. Uh, I'm sure all that was a reality in your situation. You learned a lot of good stuff out of it. What would you tell that kid that's listening, watching right now? 
Yeah, there was no portal back in the day. Uh, no. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you stay and you fight and you compete. I don't agree with the transfer thing. I know there are some, some scenarios where it, it, it makes sense. And I know there are a number of scenarios where it's worked out and a guy is transferred and left. I mean, you look at Kyler Murray. He's a great example. He transferred out of out on A and M and, and yeah. tried, you know, you know, went to to, to try something new. Um, but I I wouldn't change anything I went through for the world. I mean, I I learned as a eighteen year old. I was I was seventeen. I learned the West Coast offense at seventeen. Yep. Um, which, as you know, the West Coast offense is not simple. It's not easy. It is pure progression and. Yeah. So different than everything what we're seeing now, but I knew protections. I knew six, seven, eight protections. I knew concepts. I knew rhythm of timing, first hits, second hits, third hits, run. Um, and that was great because as soon as I got to the NFL and, or actually before I got to the NFL, as soon as I started, you know, getting interviewed by teams before the draft, I already knew what scat 22 protection and two and three jet were. Yep. And that was years ago but I file all that away. And then I learned Norm Chow's offense when Pete Carroll got there, Norm Chow came in as offense coordinator and my play action bootleg knowledge went through the roof. My screen game knowledge went through the roof. So I, it was awesome. I learned two, two offenses and knew them inside and out before I got to the NFL. Um, but the, the grass isn't always greener. And, mm. and, I learned it from Kinsey and PZ. The grass isn't always greener. And a lot of times it's because there's more, there's more horse manure on the other side of the fence. And I think a lot of guys get stuck in that, man, I'm at, you know, UNLV and I'm transferring to Boise state or whatever that is. Sometimes that situation that looks so good as you're being recruited in the portal, you get there and it may not be as good, or it may be a lot worse. So you, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, at least if you stay and fight and compete, um, you know what the, you know the situation you're in, and you know um, the good and the bad. If you just leave, you could be going to a worse situation. So um, I look at my situation uniquely. I mean, mine was I learned NFL style offense straight out of high school into Norm Chow's system, which had a lot of NFL uh, schemes, but totally different, different verbiage, different uh, schematically different um philosophically philosophically different so that was great that was great learning and then the new coach comes in and i gotta i gotta rewin this job i gotta compete every day i can't sit back and go well i was a starter last year i'm gonna work on this no i had to work on everything and i had to prove myself all over again to an entirely new staff from top to bottom so my situation may have been different than a lot of guys are thinking about that that portal and thinking about looking for greener pastures um but i'm of I'm of the mindset that you stay and you compete. Um, you try to win the job. And if you don't win it, you don't win it. But I, I go back to Matt Castle all the time. Matt Castle was my backup. And then I left and he competed uh, with Matt Leinert in USC and lost the job. And it turns out Matt Castle ended up playing a lot more games than guys he got beat out by and played yep. a lot longer. And he never played quarterback in college. He stayed and competed. He learned, he learned the West Coast offense from Paul Hackett and then Paul Hackett got fired, learned Pete Carroll's offense and played different positions and ran down on kickoff and did whatever he could to help the team win. And sure enough, I think he played in the league for like 12, 13 years and was a starter for longer than other guys around him. So, um, you know, I, I just think 
what you can learn. There's peaks and valleys to every career. And what mm-hmm. you learn at the bottom of those valleys, they harden you. And, and they make you a better person, more importantly, than a better football player. But they harden who you are. And they show you, and, and at a young age, teach you who you are and how to compete and how to work and how to reprove yourself to a new staff and a new group. Um, so I'm a firm believer in, in staying and fighting and competing. Uh, I love it. It's been such a common theme, too. I mean, Hall of Famers, guys with incredible careers, all went through adversity, didn't quit, fought, competed got got hard and do hard things blah i mean just endless messaging on the show of the best to ever do it saying the same things you just said so that's gold dust for all these young kids that they're literally them and their parents are looking for the easy route and it's it's ruining their chance to reach their potential so thanks for sharing that well worked out for you your senior year was incredible you win the heisman trophy you throw 39 touchdowns or sorry 33 touchdowns um you ball out uh you played in the Orange Bowl that year, is that correct? Played in the Orange Bowl against Iowa, yep. All right, so just give me a quick little synopsis before we go to our, our next break on that senior year and how epic, not just personally your achievements, but the team's achievements and what that was like. Yeah, so my junior year, I started getting recruited by agents. Mm-hmm. And every agent's telling me to come out, come out, come out, mm-hmm. come out, come out. And um, some guys are saying – late first round, but definitely an early second round pick. And um, other guys are telling me I'll get up in the middle of the first round after my workouts and our team, our team wasn't real good. Our junior year, we lost a bunch of seniors. We got really young my senior year and had some true freshmen that had huge impacts on our team. So that's always an unknown when you're going into the next year, you don't know who this new recruiting class. And on the other end of that recruiting class was Mike Williams was a receiver out of Florida that Pete brought in and started from the jump at receiver was a great outlet for me and caught a bunch of those 33 touchdowns. And, um, but I didn't see that. I didn't know that was on the horizon. I didn't know who Mike Williams was at that time. And I got all these agents in my ear, come out, come out, come out, come out. Um, and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Um, I hadn't accomplished what I wanted to accomplish in college. Um, I needed another year maturity wise. I wanted to get to the NFL. I felt, and I'd been to all these camps and, you know, as I was being told I was going to be, you know, a, a second round pick or maybe an end of the first round pick, the ones that were the top picks, I know, I knew those guys I'd thrown against them. I'd competed them. I'm saying that bull junk that I'm better than that guy. And that guy's a, a, the top three pick. And so I, that, that became very competitive for me. Um, going into my senior year to prove myself because I wanted to go to the next level and I wanted to play in the NFL and I would have been pissed if I would have come out and then the next year, a guy that I knew I was better than got drafted 38 spots ahead of me. So that was just kind of like that little that little dangling carrot that, that keeps the, the donkey going down the trail. That little dangling carrot kept me going. And um, I knew I was I knew I had more potential than being a, a maybe a second round pick. So um, I really didn't even think about it very long going into my senior year. I, I had everybody telling me the same thing and I wanted to go against the grain and and play another year and finish what my freshman class that had come in together started. Um, And so that senior year started and um, we lost a heartbreaker um, to Washington state who had Jason Gesser at quarterback was a Mm -hmm. phenomenal college football player. And that, that Wazoo Mm -hmm. team was really good. And they went on to the Rose bowl that year and we went down and, and 
I thought we won the game um, at the end and there was like 30 seconds on the clock and they went 80 yards with no timeouts and 30 seconds with a big inside post uh, before Tampa two was Tampa two <laughs> before Tampa two had the mic running down the middle and Jason Gesser yeah. hit that inside seam and went all the way down and scored and the place went nuts and we walked out and we were one and one. Um, and you know, here we go again, you know, in, in LA, Oh, they lost to Wazoo at Wazoo. Here we go again. Another SC team. It's Pete Carroll's fault, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that was a turning point for that team. Um, because we knew we shouldn't have lost that game. We had the game won, and we knew that was probably our best competition in the PAC 12 that year. They were the most loaded PAC 12 team. And then we just kind of took off from there. And, and, um, by that point, everybody was in, everybody bought into the program and Pete's system and, um, you know, we took off from there and there was a lot of talk back then there was no playoffs. And that year it was Ohio state with Maurice Claret in Miami when Ken Dorsey and all those, all those horses that were down there in Miami, that team was unbelievable. But we felt that, you know, that we were the best team in the country that year. We didn't get a chance, uh, to prove it. So we went down to the orange bowl and blew my, or blew, uh, Iowa out and, and handled them pretty easily. Um, but yeah, I mean, once, once we lost that game, everybody bought in, things took off and then I left and then Pete Carroll era just continued to, on the upward trajectory and won national championship after national championship. You didn't even mention you won the Heisman trophy. Won the Heisman, uh, <laughs> which was cool. That's pretty cool, huh? Where's it, cool. where's it sit these days? So I just got an email. So this is actually interesting. So I, I was on the Dan Patrick show a couple years ago and, and I was in between moves and it was in the, in a box in the garage and Dan, Dan had asked, you know, can I have it? Can I display it in the man cave on the Dan Patrick show? So I sent it out there, was sitting in his office for the last couple of years and I'm uh, being inducted into the college football hall of fame in December. Oh, sweet. And so Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. Um, and so the college football hall of fame was wondering if they could get it. So I called up Dan, I'm like, Hey, send the Heisman to the college football hall of fame. And so I get an email yesterday that that's, it, it came in this really nice, big, beautiful case, this metal case with a little key. Yeah. And so, um, I get a call that Dan had sent it to the college F football hall of fame, but the letter or the envelope that the key was in on the outside of the case had been torn open and the key was gone. Oh, wow. So I've got a box. I've got a big, beautiful silver box that the Heisman Trophy, Heisman Trophy is sitting in at the College Football Hall of Fame. I don't know that they can display a big box, but I don't know where those keys are. So if you work for FedEx and you found my keys, please send them. That's funny. I mean, the Super Bowl trophy come, came the same way. We lost the keys. And when we moved to Nashville, we kind of we drove it up because I couldn't use the box anymore. So I totally get yep. it. All right. Yep. We're going to get to our second break. When we come back. We'll talk to Carson about his pre-draft process. And also I'm going to ask him a question as he looks at this from 30,000 feet, what he sees the evolution of quarterback play look like, what his perspective is on that. We'll be right back. Beyond the X's and O's is brought to you by State Farm. Just like State Farm offers surprisingly great rates for your car insurance, I want to share with you a surprisingly great moment from my career, and it came from Super Bowl 35, and it came actually when I was playing terribly. I started off the game brutal, couldn't hit anything, missed Brandon Stokely wide open on a crossing route, and Jabal Lewis in the flat. I didn't have enough energy. We're at a TV timeout, I'm sitting there in the huddle waiting for the play call to come in, and we substitute Sam Gash onto the field, and Sam Gash 
my favorite teammates of all time, comes up to me, grabs me by the chest plate and says, we need your juice. We need your energy. You're not yourself today. I said, you know what? You're right. And immediately I had that spark. The hair on my arms stood up. And that was the series through the first touchdown to Brandon Stokely of Super Bowl 35. And that's why I love the journey of the quarterback. There's so many surprisingly great lessons to be learned from this unique position. And remember, whether you're a Super Bowl winning quarterback or an armchair QB relaxing happily at home, State Farm provides coverage that meets your needs at a price that fits your budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so we talked about the Heisman Trophy, the incredible senior year, Orange Bowl victory over Iowa, and now you go into the draft. You talked about how you knew you wanted to be a top pick. Like the NFL had been on your mind for a long time. Uh, now it's time to go through the process. What was that process like for you? Yeah, so I, I got done. Um, I got done with the Orange Bowl, went through the whole process of hiring an agent. Um, I hired Dave Dunn through Athletes First, who you know very well, who's mm -hmm. a phenomenal agent. Um, amazing. Best in the business. And, um, best in the biz. And um, everybody was telling me, don't, don't play in a senior bowl. You don't need to do it. And I was like, well, I want to go down there and I want to go do it. And so Dave and I had to, you know, let's go do it. I got nothing to hide. I got, you know, there's a lot of guys that are worried. I wanted to go down there and throw next to the other guys that were getting drafted and throw to the guys that I was going to be playing against and, and all that. And, um, went down and, and played in the senior bowl. Um, and then just started the, the whole training process and, and, you know, sharpening up my footwork, working a ton under center, working a ton in gun, um, and just really started getting ready for the draft. And, and, you know, I was, I had a, a big meeting with Dave at his office in Orange County and um, everybody at that time was saying, all right, the Bengals are going to draft you. And this, the draft is still months out and everybody's saying, you can't go there. You can't do it. You cannot go there. It's a quarterback quarterback graveyard came up in every conversation I had every, and I didn't know. I mean, I, like I said, I didn't grow up watching football. So I didn't, I didn't even know the Bengals were never on TV ever, like ever, ever. So I'd never seen a Bengal stadium filled with people on the Bengals playing. I'd never seen a Monday night game with the, I, I just didn't know anything about really the AFC North other than Pittsburgh was a really good defense mm -hmm. and Baltimore had Ray Lewis. I mean, that, that was what I knew, but every conversation I was having different interviews for, you know, radio spots, TV spots. And so I was, I was going through this process of everybody saying, you can't do it. And it's kind of like the process of you shouldn't play in the senior bowl. Well, I want to. And you, uh, you know, you shouldn't play your senior year of college. You should come out. Well, I, I want to play my senior year. At the time, I thought, well, this team, this, this team, the Bengals, I mean, they've been bad for so long. I'll, I'll, I'll go there and I'll change it. And I'll, you know, the, the culture there is blah, 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 blah is what I'm hearing. Well, I'll go and I'll change it. Um, so I was of the mind. I was excited about it. I couldn't, I couldn't wait because I, I always, you know, us quarterbacks, we like proving people wrong. I mean, we like going against the grain and, and I, I definitely um, went against the grain because there wasn't one person that was ever like, Oh, it's a great situation. You should do it. You know, you just let them draft you and, and do it. Um, there was a lot of talk about doing the kind of the Eli Manning thing with the San Diego yep. chargers to get to New York. And it just was never a thought in my head. It was never an option. Um, and so I, I just kept training and kept preparing, kept meeting with the Bengals staff and, and talking football and talking shop and um, was really looking forward to going there, proving everybody wrong and changing the culture and changing 
um, the future. So I want to hit two things. I, we got to do these kind of quick. So I don't want you, I don't want to steal too much of your time, but I want your best pre-draft story. But also before we go there, you talked about honing your footwork, gun, under center, just the details and the craft of the position before the draft. Your brother, Jordan, who we've talked about before earlier in the show, has really revolutionized the pre-draft process, uh, getting quarterbacks ready. And sometimes it's poo-pooed by the mainstream media. Of, oh, that's just underwear Olympics. What can they really do? Um, I know you believe it. I believe it. I, I mean, I'm Jordan's biggest fan as he does it. That's an important time for these quarterbacks, isn't it? And, and how much did you get out of it? How much better were you able to get from the end of the Orange Bowl until you were drafted and went for that went to that first OTA? Just incrementally better. I mean, the, the more you work at your craft, you're not going to get worse unless you're practicing yep. bad habits. If you're practicing great habits, you're going to incrementally get better over time. Um, and that was my mindset. I wasn't. I didn't go into the draft process saying, "Hey, I need to completely change." the way I throw speed outs mm -hmm. to the left, or I need to completely change my throwing motion or my delivery and, and mechanically um, hit the reset button. I never thought mm -hmm. that. I just wanted to continue to build upon the foundation that I had. Um, but sitting there watching the Monday night game last night against uh, the Jets or the Giants against uh, Kansas City, you see these quarterbacks, and there was a, a great illustration of it last night. You always fall back on your fundamentals mm -hmm. unless you're unfundamentally sound. And I'm not saying anything, I don't know Daniel Jones, and I'm not saying he's fundamentally sound, but there was a couple throws in that game where if he would have relied on his fundamentals in the heat of the moment, when he's got two guys bearing down, and he threw a quick, it was like a wide flare to his right that should have been picked, but the DB fell down. It was right when he was getting hit. He just kind of turned and threw it. He didn't flip his hips, get his feet underneath him, and deliver the ball accurately. And, and that's what I've always focused on is, you can do it in the underwear Olympics. You can make a five-step drop, hitch, and throw as pretty as anybody. But when you got a guy bearing down on you and it's on the line, do you go to the easy route, which is just the flick and get the ball out and avoid the hit? Or do you flip your hips, stay on platform, and deliver the ball accurately and technically sound? So um, I'm a firm believer that you, you do all these reps. You do the underwear Olympics. You work on your footwork as soon as the season's over after you've had a month rest because those are the things you rely on when the times get tough. And when you've had a, you're struggling and it's rainy and the wind, the wind's blowing 20 knots out of the right to the left, those fundamentals can get you out of a bad situation into a good situation. And so um, I just think that all these, you know, I understand the under, underwear Olympics and how many times you bench press 225 pounds. Does it really matter? No, but that ability, uh, if you're an offensive lineman, you've repped 225 a gazillion times, gives you something to hunker down and use when you've got Aaron Donald in front of you and the ground's wet and you've given up two set two sacks earlier to him. You bury down, you use that power, you keep your hands inside, you push from the same position you push on that bench, whatever that is, those fundamentals that that seem really great and they look really great when coaches are watching you out on the field and there's no defenders on you and you're throwing routes versus air. But when you're not throwing routes versus air and the ground's wet, the ball's wet, the wind's howling, and you've got to put that ball on the outside shoulder, your best bet is to get your feet right and be technically sound to keep that ball on the outside shoulder. Because if you're a little bit off technically and fundamentally, fundamentally aren't quite as strong as you should be, that ball ends up on the inside shoulder and the ball knocks down and now you're punting on fourth and eighth.
Amen. That was awesome. Any fun pre-draft stories? Any funny things come up? Any memorable stories you haven't told publicly? You know, it was such a, everybody knew the Bengals were going to draft me. You know, my, my only pre-draft story, I, I didn't meet with many teams. Everybody knew the Bengals yeah. were taking me. It wasn't, um, there wasn't, uh, maybe they're going to take a D end or maybe they're, they're going to trade out the Bengals. The, the Bengals were taking me and I actually signed my draft, my draft, my uh, first contract days before the draft. That, yeah. So, um, I didn't get, you know, I went to the common, I was so excited. I was going to meet the big tuna yeah. and, you know, all these great coaches and nobody interviewed me because they all knew I was going to Cincinnati. <laughs> so I just ended up hanging out in Indianapolis by myself. And I was there with Justin Fargus, one of my old great teammates, Malifo McKenzie and Jacob Rod, and all these guys that I played with. And all these guys are getting to go and meet and talk football and film study. And they come back to the room and everybody's like, oh, I met so-and-so and I did this and I did this. And I was like, dude, I've been sitting in the, and this is before like cell phones, really. I've been sitting in my room watching TV. Um, and, but that was my whole draft. I didn't, and I, the other thing I was excited about doing is I get to go to these, you know, all my buddies are getting on flights, flying first yeah. class to Chicago to go and see the Chicago Bears facility and go into New England. And I didn't get to go anywhere. No, nobody brought me in on a trip. Nobody, um, I didn't get to go and do all those things that I was so excited to get to do. I literally went to Cincinnati and nowhere else. Um, but it was also kind of a blessing because all my buddies were on go nonstop, yeah. you know, trip after trip after trip, going to see all these different um, cities and, you know, getting to meet all these coaches and going out to dinner with current players and, and what, um, what have you. And I didn't get to do any of that. I just went to Cincinnati and, and met with a handful of folks there. And then um, I was back in Southern California getting ready for the next yeah. season. That's awesome. Well, that's a great pre-draft story. That's incredible perspective. I bet you most people don't even know that. Uh, all right. So I'm not going to make you go through your 15 year NFL career. I, you have an incredible football life on NFL network. People, if you're watching this, you want to dig into the 15 incredible years that Carson played, go to football life and, and watch his, his story of his career. But I do want to talk about your rookie year uh, because you sat, they brought in a mutual friend of ours. I think one of the greatest humans on the planet and a very good player in John Kitna. Uh, he played in front mm -hmm. of you, got to watch. Uh, do you, do you value that year watching? And now that you see this conversation every year of these top draft choices coming in, where do you land? Cause I've changed. I used to be the pro Carson Palmer, the pro Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes sit for a year, let the older, I always call it the sacrificial lamb. Cause I was a sacrificial lamb for younger guys. Let the older guy play and get his brains beat in. Let the younger guy watch. I've kind of changed. I kind of like seeing the young guys play now. Where do you, what was that year like for you? And where do you, what side of the fence do you stand on now experiencing it with the young guys playing right away? Yeah. I mean, now it's, 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 I, I simply think it's contractually based. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I came out, you signed, everybody signed a five-year mm -hmm. contract with a six-year option. Yep. Now it's a four-year with a fifth-year mm -hmm. option. So organizationally, you don't have that buffer of that, that extra year to give a, a guy a chance to sit and watch. You've only got four years to make a decision on whether or not you're going to pay that guy 40 million bucks a year or not. So you need data, you need footage, you need game footage. And, and um, you know, it was great for me personally, because I had, like you said, one of the greatest human beings and a great player in John Kitten in front of me who absolutely took me under his wing from the day I got there. Um, there was no competition in his eyes. He was there to help me out. 
And he happened to be the starter for the first year. And that was set in stone. Marvin Lewis, the head coach said, Kitten is going to be the starter. Carson's going to sit back and learn. But that was only because I had that extra year organizationally for the team to sit there and, and make a decision on year two, three, four, five, before they gave me an extension. Now, if you let a guy sit, you've only got really two years before you have to make that decision. So you've only got essentially 32 games, 34 games now with the 17 game schedule to make that decision. That's just not a big enough window for these owners to make a decision, whether they're going to give a guy a hundred million bucks guaranteed. Um, so I think that's out the window, unless you're just, you know, Trey Lance is a great example. He's probably not quite ready to play. He didn't play a ton in college. He doesn't have a ton of film to watch. Um, he really, really needs this, this extra year. I played four years in college, so I got the reps playing against high level competition. Um, but unfortunately, just the way contracts are set up, organizations don't have that extra year to let a guy really sit and learn the game. Um, so, I mean, I, I thought my situation was great because John was way better than I was in year eight of his career than I was in year one. Um, but I also got to watch him watch film and lift weights and take care of his body and stand up in front of the room and give a, a, a pep talk the night before a game stand up in front of the offense after a tough loss that he maybe he didn't play as well as he could have and take it and, and just eat it, uh, raise his hand and say, my bad, we lost that game. Cause I, I got to see all those things at 20 years old, 21 years old. Um, so my situation was so different. That was so rare and unique. I, I think back to Alex, Alex Smith's situation with Patrick Mahomes, Alex Smith's the same guy. Yep. Alex Smith knew that the writing was on the wall. Patrick's the future and you can either be for him or against him. And, and Alex is the kind of guy like John, he was for Patrick and helped him along and showed him, this is what a pro does. This is how a pro handles his off season schedule. This is how a pro handles his in season schedule. Um, so each situation is so dependent really upon the guy that's in front of this young drafted kid. Um, not everybody has that luxury that Patrick and I had. But now, just contractually, the way it's set up, it's just too hard for these owners to draft a kid one, two, or three and not get anything out of him in year one other than just you know a learning year. So um, the game has changed drastically with, with the new CBA and the way these, these rookie contracts are structured. I want to talk about the CBA real quick, uh, but I want to make one commentary on your career. I, I do want to lean into this. I, you know audience understand that when you're playing in the NFL as a quarterback, we watch the other quarterbacks, we study the other quarterbacks, we watch the game film. We also are very tight knit fraternity in the off season. Carson was a guy that was widely recognized amongst us fraternity NFL quarterbacks as an elite talent, an elite competitor, an elite uh, leader. Uh, and all of us sympathize with him because he didn't play for great teams. And I, I would define, I mean, this is dumbing down your career, but if I had to define Carson Palmer's career, I think you're one of the greatest of all time of taking bad teams and making them good. Uh, everywhere you went, where you started, whether it was the Bengals, Oakland, Arizona was struggling and the acquisition of you, not just as a player, but as a presence in that organization turned bad programs into really, really competitive programs. So I want to make sure I said that. But speaking of the CBAs, you know, you played through two of them, I believe. 
Uh, you played a long time. You saw a lot of change in the NFL. Talk to me about the evolution of the quarterback. I'm blown away by it, and I get to see it more so than you at the grad. Me and your brother, Trevor, on the country and see these kids at a young age. We watch their development. I always say there's 50 high school kids every year, maybe 70, that are way better than I was uh, at that age. Uh, it's remarkable how many young, good players there are, and then based on their experiences in college, who they're around, who they play with, the systems they play and really determines their success. But as you watch it from afar, uh, are you as impressed as I am with the quality of the position? I am. Um, there's a lot more weight being put in playmaking mm -hmm. ability and, and, and being able to win than there is in height and Amen. weight and RPMs on a football and velocity on the ball. Um, but going back to kind of what you were saying with, with the evolution of the position, I think a lot of that is because of the new, the new structure. Yes. And when you have Kyler Murray is another great example. He really only played one year of college football. And then he was really the starter from the day he got drafted in Arizona. And they brought in Cliff Kingsbury, who was a college coach. You don't have a chance to teach him the West nope. Coast offense. You don't have a chance to put in the system that you really want to run. All Cliff did was take what he did at the University of Oklahoma and what he was comfortable with and build upon that. And because you don't have that year to sit back and learn and understand, you know, 12 new protections, they're going to be in every game plan minus one or two or add one or two here and there. You got to go with what these guys that have done in the past that made them successful in the past and find a way to make it work in the NFL. And that's what you're seeing this, the RPO, um, you know, the evolution of the game, all the runners you're seeing that maybe don't throw it as good. Uh, as some of the pocket passers, but they add that extra element of being able to win with their legs and move the chains with their legs. Um, so I think it's a combination of we only have four years to make a decision on this guy. Let's do what he did best in college and put it into what we're doing in the NFL. And like the portal talked earlier, there's a lot of there, there's very few guys that like you and I that played their entire college career and have all those reps and have all those experiences. There's a lot of guys that. Kyler Murray started off at Texas A&M and then went to Oklahoma. And then the next year he's in the NFL. There's a lot of turmoil there. There's a lot of lost in translation, different systems. So going back and doing what he did that made him the Heisman Trophy winner and almost a national champion in college and implementing it into your system with a very short window because of the new CBA of how many hours that kid can be at the facility learning and lifting weights and practicing, everything got scrunched. And so you have to, I, I love what Cliff's done. You have to, to take what they did and what they know well and what they're comfortable with and make them comfortable as possible in week one and then build to week two, week six, week 10, week 17. So, um, you know, it, it does blow me away the success that guys are having at an early age because I'll never forget when Ben Roethlisberger started as, as a rookie after uh, I, I forget who the quarterback Tommy um, Maddox. Tommy Maddox was the was a starter. He got hurt, and then Roethlisberger came in, and everybody was like, "Oh man, you can't you can't win with a rookie quarterback." Make sure I don't think they lost a game mm -hmm. that year um, until maybe early in the playoffs. But that was like the first real success story of a youngster coming in and just taking over and playing. Whether he played good or not, they won. Yep. Um, but playing early and being on a successful team just wasn't in the cards. It wasn't something that happened. It wasn't something that people talked about until Roethlisberger came in and did that in Pittsburgh. 
Um, so that was a, that was a really interesting thing to see a, a young guy come in from a smaller school in Miami of Ohio and have such great success early on in his career. Well, it's really interesting. And I, I want to talk about your family, then we'll let you go. But last year I was cleaning out my garage in my home in Tahoe. And I stumbled upon, I, they must have been there for 20 years, old playbooks from my rookie and second year with Sam Weish in Tampa. And then I, when I got back to Nashville, I was going through, we were moving homes there too. And I found my Seahawks uh, and Ravens playbooks. And I started going through them. I just sat down on the floor and started, and I'm, you're so right. I mean, it was nine protections a week. Uh, we had 75 code words for formations, motions, and plays under Weish. Uh, run checks. I, I got in like the run list and like we'd go into a game with eight runs and all of them had multiple checks in them. And you have the same experience, 15 years. I, I wanted to like go get me like you, me, Bledsoe, one other guy and like get all the playbooks together and be like, this is how hard it was when you were young. And you just said it perfectly. Now they come in and yeah, they have stuff to learn, but they're going to morph the system around the quarterback and even change their nomenclature. They'll change old playbooks around a college kid's nomenclature so he can learn it faster. I think I really applaud the NFL for changing and allowing young quarterbacks to have more, more success early on. So just to add color, what you were saying. Uh, finally, we can't, we always talk about this the most important part of your journey, your family. Uh, let's finish up with just talking about your family and the impact they've had on, on your journey as a quarterback. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my mom and dad raised two NFL yeah. players. My, my brother played, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years played for just about every team. Yeah, in the league. I think he played for 33 uh, teams in eight years, but go ahead. Something like that. I think, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, but yeah, I mean, my dad didn't play, but loved the game because I loved it. Um, but he never had to like come home and say, Hey, did you get your workout in today? Hey, do you want to go throw? It was always me asking him and him never saying no. Hey dad, let's go throw. As he walks in the door, un, you know, unbutton his tie and suit and yep, let's go. I'll go upstairs and change. So, but he never pushed it. He never forced it. We talked about Bob Johnson early in these weekend clinics. Um, he never had to wake me up, say, Hey, we gotta, we gotta be at the field in, in 30. I was up, I was ready to go. It was never forced upon me. And that's, that's something I, I talk to parents about with that, that ask a lot of questions is if you want it too bad, that's, the, that's a problem. You can't want it too bad for your kid. Cause that if you got it, you got it. And I live in Idaho now and we're going through this, with my seventh grade son, he, he's, he's got it. And you can be found anywhere. If you got it, you got it. And I'm not just talking about, can he throw a spiral? Can he throw it far? He can do that, but he's got it from a mentality. He is on my brother's platform, QB summit. He watches all the videos. He does the, I think there's a Sunday afternoon call, Zoom yeah. call that he gets. He can't wait for it. He can't wait to come home and throw. He can't, his, his, his Jersey is washed. His pants are ready to go. Like there's no, I've never, my dad never drugged me to practice. He never forced me to get in the gym. He never said, Hey, did you, you know, did you throw today after school with, with your receivers? That was never, he never forced it upon us, which I think made me want it even yeah. more. I think if my dad would have been harping on me, Hey, you should throw tomorrow. Hey, you should lift some weight. If, if that was the dialogue between he and I, I may not have loved the game as much, 
Um, but I'm a firm believer. If you got it, you got it. And there's some parents that maybe their kid doesn't have it physically, but they have it in their heart. And I see it a lot with my brother's camps. Now that my son is now doing my brother's camps and they're working on this game that way. Um, there's a bunch of kids out there that you see him throw. You're like, Oh my goodness. He doesn't have a shot. He can't throw it from here to there. <laughs> but I asked Jordan about him. He's like, dude, I told his dad that, but the kid, everything I asked him to do, he, he did it 12 times that week. And he just fundamentally, he's technically flawless because he works at it and he works at it and he works at it. There's room in the game for that yes. player. There's no doubt about it. Um, but you either got it or you don't. And sometimes, unfortunately, there's parents that, that the parents got it and the kid doesn't, <laughs> and it doesn't seem like it works out very well in the end for that group. It's so true. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I mean, there's so many parents that they want it so bad for their kid and maybe they harp on it too much that maybe the kid does have it, but they've been deterred because of the way their mom or dad has handled the situation. Um, so I just, I mean, I, my biggest advice for parents is don't say no. No, you could be in the middle of a really important email that's got to be out by five and it's three 30 and your son comes home and wants to just, he wants to play catch. Yes. Just don't say no. That, that's the one thing I, I can say that, that my dad never said was, no, I'm not going to take you on Saturday because I want to go play golf or no, I'm not going to take you down to the field and, and do calisthenics and run gassers. And cause I got a meeting, I got to prep for or whatever that is. Um, be open, be available. I think that's one of the best things you can do for your kids that want to be athletes in whatever sport it is. Make yourself available. Um, Cause you know, as a kid, you ask your dad and he's like, no, I got to do this and this. It can feel like what, what's so important in your world is the kid. Maybe it's not that important because your parent doesn't have time, but if it's so important to you as a kid, I need to go throw 50 balls. And your dad says yes. And he's willing to drop whatever he's in the middle of and stop what he's doing and say yes to then all of a sudden as a kid you realize oh it's it's as important to him as it is me this is great let's go do it let's go let's go improve let's go and get let's get better let's be ready to compete harder um so i think that's the best advice that that parents in this generation can get is don't want it too bad for your kid recognize whether they got it and whether got it from a physical standpoint and an ability standpoint but also got it from a mental standpoint and a capacity standpoint where they want to take that on. They want to work and they want to compete. They want to spend a ton of hours away from their head coach and their team on their own. And they want to get better and they want to improve. So just all in on that, just facilitate that as much as you can as a parent, give them as many opportunities as they can, if they truly want it, but don't want it so bad that you're dragging them off the couch playing video games to go and work out or to go to practice or whatever that may be. Wow. That's why we're doing the show. That was the perfect ending. I hope, I hope you all listened. I mean, this is a guy that had an incredible career is a great father, great husband has done everything the right way. And now just gave you some gold dust to help you raise your kids uh, as they chase this journey. Carson, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for your time. And, and thank you for your wise words. Anytime TD. Good catching up, man. Big thanks to my dear friend Carson Palmer. Uh, what a wise voice. What a great player it was. And a big thanks to our friends at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go to statefarm.com today to get a quote.